signifies. Okay? And this is what she says. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham." And to his offering, to his offspring forever. Amen. Uh, I love that that uh, those verses about Mary and in her soul uh, magnifying and rejoicing in her God and Savior. And this morning we want to take just a, a few minutes here and study our way through this passage. Um, as I said, the the verse begins with. The verb there in verse 47, the word uh, megalunai in, uh, in Greek uh, is the word magnify. It means to make great, to celebrate, to uh, exult in, to give praise to God, to make Him great, to magnify His name. Now, some of you who are Bible scholars are going, well, wait a minute. You read this, and it doesn't say that she sang. It says that she said, right? And you're correct. She doesn't sing these words. But if you are a Bible scholar, you will also know this, that these words follow the exact same pattern and poetic structure of the Psalms. And in fact, much of the content as well as the form is uh, is straight out of the psalms themselves and if you know the psalms you know that it's israel's songbook it's their hymn book Uh, about 70 percent of the book of psalms is the blues okay their laments Uh, if you're familiar with the blues um, that's what it is okay the act of singing the blues is is cathartic the idea is if you if you sing as bb uh, king used to nobody loves me but my mother right um, then you can remember how bad your circumstances are but you also you look forward in hope to the fact that that's that there's something greater and a greater purpose to what's going on. And so many times in the Psalms you have laments and you have praises and you have um, prayers to God to intervene. Uh, And Mary's song here, if you will, follows both form and content right out of the Psalms. She is saturated with this stuff and she is applying it to her own situation and realizing that God in His uh, magnificent intervention in her life to bring the birth of the Savior through her, that He is doing something absolutely unique and she is celebrating that fact. Um, the, the, the theme of, uh, of these verses is that first word, the word magnifying. 
that she's going to praise God and she's going to give us three reasons why not only that she praises God, but by why everyone else should as well. And the first reason is that God gives mercy to the humble. Look closely at what, how, what Mary, how Mary describes what God has done for her. Why does her spirit rejoice in God my Savior? It says, because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. What Mary is saying here is, look, I'm just an ordinary girl. And is that true? Yes. There is nothing particularly special about Mary. Mary, you know, in, in Christian artwork, I think we go wrong a lot of times, right? And you, you picture, whenever there's a painting of Mary, Mary is always pictured as kind of nigh unto angelic. She is stunningly beautiful in a lot of paintings. And then there's this kind of holy glow that kind of surrounds her like a Thomas Kincaid painting, right? There's, there's just this light that suffuses her. And did Mary look like that? No. The artist is maybe trying to give you a little bit about the significance of Mary and, and, how, and how her, um, you know, the importance that she has in, in God's plan. But, but she didn't look like that. She's just an ordinary peasant girl. Her parents were probably farmers in Galilee, in a little town called Nazareth, which is so small, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible outside of the birth narratives about Jesus. She says, look, I am a, an ordinary girl, a pious girl, a girl who knows her Bible, obviously, a girl who, who loved her Lord, but she is not vastly different from any one of thousands of other pious, ordinary Jewish girls of her own day. And she is absolutely in awe of the fact that God has seen her and chosen her to use her as the means through which the Messiah will enter the world. She says, He has looked on me. Meaning that out of all of the vastness of the universe, out of all of the people, not only of the world, but of Israel, God sees me. And God grabbed me as the vessel that He chose to bear His Son into the world. And she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. By the way, did that happen? Yes. 2,000 years later, we are still talking about this ordinary Jewish girl who was greatly blessed to be used of God to bring the Savior into the world. She was the most uniquely blessed, in fact, person in all of, the history, in all of world history and billions of people uh, in the years since and to this very day continue to call her blessed. Does that mean that we should venerate her in some way or pray to her? No. But it does mean that we should celebrate along with her the things that she celebrates. The coming of her firstborn. Amen? We should celebrate along with her the things she celebrates. And that's what we see her doing. Verse 49. 
She has turned from being troubled and confused. Remember, when the angel Gabriel comes and he tells her, hey, greetings, you who are highly favored. She says that Mary is troubled. And then she asks a question. How can this be that I'm going to have a child by the Most High in that I am a virgin? By the way, she is still a virgin at this time. And she is troubled and confused by how this is all going to happen. But then she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, and as they're talking, she has moved from being troubled and confused to now celebrating and believing what the angel Gabriel has told her and praising God for what he has done and exalting God in his holiness. And Mary also realizes as she sees in verse 50 that God's grace to humble little people like her, the humble estate of his servant, is not just something that she praises God for, but it's also something that we can praise God for. It says from generation to generation, because it's a characteristic of who God is and what he does. That he looks on humble people. As long as there are people, as long as there's time that lasts, those who fear the Lord, those who humble themselves before Him are likewise people whom God sees. And likewise, people for whom He does great things. God still sees and does great things for those who fear Him. Amen? So let me ask you this morning, are you humble before God? Are you humble before God? Do you fear Him in the sense of bowing your heart before Him and living in obedience to Him? That's what the fear of the Lord means. It means that, that when you come before God, that you bow your life in obedience and love and reverence to the One who loves you and sees you. Instead of living in rebellion against Him, you submit yourself to Him. That is the fear of the Lord. And in order to do that, you have to be humble. Amen? I remember reading Philip Yancey years ago. I love to read Philip Yancey. And he said, in a moment of, of just transparency, he said, you know, sometimes I think I follow Jesus uh, mostly out of a lack of good options, most of which I have tried. <laughs> okay. And, and I think that he's exactly right. You know, it kind of echoes what Peter said. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Are you humble this morning? Do you fear the Lord because He is still a God who sees you? Who sees you? who knows what you're going through, who looks on your life and its circumstances, and as you bow your heart and life before Him, will do and has done great things in it and for you. God sees you. 
And Mary says that from generation to generation, God faithfully does that. That He looks on those who are humble, on those who fear Him, and works and acts on their behalf. Now there's a second reason why Mary magnifies the Lord, her God and her Savior. It's because He overthrows the prideful and the mighty. He overthrows the prideful and the mighty. Now, it's interesting, if you look at verses 51 to 55, Mary speaks of God's actions in the past tense. And she is speaking, though, about the coming of Messiah, which at the time that she is there speaking these words, hasn't happened yet. So she is speaking about things as if they're already happened, but that are yet to come in the future. And the reason for that is she is using what, if you're a Bible scholar, you would call the prophetic past. In other words, she is, uh, she is speaking about future events with such a great degree of confidence, it is as if they have already occurred. That I am so certain that God is going to do these things that I can speak about them as if they have already occurred. Uh, so let me ask you all of the, some, some questions about this, okay? Has God overthrown all of the prideful and the mighty? Say no. No. Are the prideful and the mighty still in power all over the world? Yes. Are they still in power in this country? Yes. But, but when Messiah comes, will that mean the overthrow of all of the arrogant and the powerful and the wicked? Yes. And Mary speaks with great confidence about these things coming because she knows that if Messiah is coming through me, then that means that Messiah's kingdom is also coming. And I can speak about these things that haven't happened yet as if they already have because God has kept His promise and I know He's kept it because I'm already pregnant with the Messiah. So this is what she says. It will mean a total reversal of fortune for God's people. God's people are usually people of humble estate. Many of them are hungry. If you go around the world, in fact, America is one of the few places in the world where God's people are not hungry in a real physical sense. At the present time, almost none are rulers and people of influence. Christians are usually among the meek and the lowly. They are usually among the world's despised, the rejected, the oppressed, the persecuted. There are more Christians killed in the last hundred years than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Christians are usually among the meek and the lowly and the despised and the hated. Paul spoke about how he, how he and his disciples were regarded. He says, people think of us as the scum of the earth, the world's garbage. 
Is that still true? Yeah. The prideful and the powerful, the rich and the mighty, they do not look with envy upon followers of Jesus. Not usually. Their power and their influence and their riches have made them cold toward God and say they live without worries, happily declaring their independence from the King of creation. Amen? They don't worry about the outcome of their life. But Jesus' conception in Mary's womb is proof that this is not how things will always be. Since Christ has come, we know that one day there's going to be a great reordering of the world and all the world's mighty and powerful and prideful will fall. And the throne of every wicked ruler on earth will be overthrown. Every wicked person will be cast down. It says here, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Jesus said it this way, very succinctly, the meek will inherit the earth. Who's He talking about? Talking about those who were humble enough to follow a man who died on a cross, stripped naked, and having people gamble for the only clothes that he ever owned. You have to be meek to follow that guy? Yeah. But one day, the meek will inherit the earth, and the prideful, and the arrogant, and the mighty, and the powerful, and the rich will be cast down. And it will be a total reversal of fortune. And those who are hungry for Messiah's coming will be filled with the good things of His rule. And those who were rich in this life and lived away from God will go away from His presence with nothing. That's what she's saying when she says He has filled the hungry with good things, the rich He sent away empty. That's what she means. That those who, were, who, as Jesus said it, hunger and thirst for righteousness are going to be filled with the presence of God. And those who were rich in this present life and wanted nothing to do with Him will wind up with nothing to do with Him. Let me ask you again. Have all these things happened? No, not yet. I think it's very safe to say that they haven't. But I think that the confidence that Mary shows here in using the prophetic past to speak about these things is something we do well to imitate. How do we know that Jesus' second advent is coming? Because the first one did. I don't know if you know this, men and women. I hope you do. But here's the reality. Everything that happened at Christmas, that first Christmas, was prophesied hundreds and in some cases thousands of years prior to Jesus' arrival. 700 years prior to Jesus, 
Isaiah prophesied about a virgin-born son who would be the Savior of the world. How about that? Micah prophesied about 600 years prior to Jesus that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea of the line and tribe of David. Malachi prophesied 400 years prior to Jesus that there would be a forerunner who would announce him and what he would do. Zechariah prophesied about 500 years prior to Jesus that he would be that he would be pierced for sin as he saved people. Moses prophesied that he would be a great prophet about 1,500 years prior to Jesus. That he would be a great prophet who would come into the world. And he wrote also about the fact that he would crush Satan and sin and death in his death. All down through the Scriptures, there's a Prediction after prediction after prediction. David describes in detail in Psalm 22 what crucifixion is like. And David is about a thousand years prior to, to Jesus. About how this would happen. Crucifixion, by the way, wasn't invented in David's day. But he describes it to a T, what happened to Jesus. And Jesus cries out words from that psalm on the cross as he dies. All these things happen in fulfillment of prophecy that God was sending a Savior into the world to save men and women from sin and death and hell. And since all these things happened in the way that God said that they would, we can trust that these things that have not happened yet that are part of the coming of the King and His kingdom in the second advent will also happen. That what we trusted God for came true. And we therefore believe that what we still need to trust God for will also come true. And we can speak about it in some sense as if it has already occurred with that level of confidence. Because God always keeps His Word. Amen? Always. Down to the very fine details. He keeps His Word. He keeps His Word. I think it's fair to say that Mary thought that Messiah, the, the Savior King, would do all these things at once. We know with the benefit of hindsight that Mary came once as Savior and will return as King. But will these things happen? Yes, they're going to happen. Dem Jesus coming demonstrated for all time that God keeps his covenant. Mary points that out. Verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Verse 54 is Mary's proclamation that the coming of Messiah is proof that God has remembered what he promised. That God has remembered what He promised. God promised them a Messiah from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the last verse of Malachi. Malachi 4, verse 6. That the entry 
of sin, from the entry of sin into the world to the very last verse of the Old Testament, God has been prophesying through His prophets about the coming of Messiah. And Mary says, this is proof that God remembered His covenant with us, His people. Mary knows that this is what has happened because she is pregnant that very moment with Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And she proclaims her excitement. Speaking in the prophetic past, praising God that He has helped them, that He has remembered them with His mercy, and that He has done so because... Verse 55, He made promises to our forefathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Remember, God took Abraham out. You read Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 18. You read God's commitment to Abraham over and over and over that I'm going to make a covenant with you and with your offspring forever. And if you could count this number of stars in the sky, that will be the number of your offspring. And if you can count the grains of sand on the seashore, well, that will be how blessed and great your nation will be after you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed and I will keep covenant with you forever until the stars wear out. And Mary is saying this is it. This is proof that God has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten His people. We know that His covenant is going to be kept because He promised to Abraham and to His offspring forever And here it is. And she's celebrating. They are promises forever. So as we celebrate Christmas this year, just three important truths I want us to remember. God gives mercy to the humble. God gives mercy to the humble. If a person comes to the end of himself or to herself and realizes that all that they have, all that they are, counts for nothing before God. All that you have, all that you are, counts for nothing before God. And if you recognize your need and come to God in faith, God is still the God who gives mercy to the humble. He is still the God who gives mercy to the humble. If you have come this morning and you don't know God from the man in the moon, can I just assure you that God still is the God who gives mercy to the humble. And if you come to Him and you say to Him, look, all I got before you is like pocket lint. Okay? I got nothing. And and I have tried to live my life as best I can uh, with all of my giftedness, all of my talent, all of my ability to make money, and I've tried to build an altar to myself for my entire life. And I came up with nothing of any lasting significance or value. And Lord, I recognize that I need You. Can I just tell you with all the love of Christ, that in that moment, God is right there near to you. 
And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary and grew up to become a man to die on a cross so that Mary herself and billions of people after her might be saved from sin and death and hell. If you will come and put your trust in that man who is the Son of God, God will give mercy to you. He died as your substitute to save you from death. And He was raised from the dead to offer you forgiveness and new life. And God gives mercy to the humble. I know some of you have, have come this morning and you've strayed away from God. You, 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 you knew Him once upon a time. But maybe it's been years since you prayed. Years since you cracked open your Bible. Years maybe since you've been to church. And you're wondering if God still wants anything to do with you. Can I tell you the answer to that question is yes. God gives mercy to the humble. And if you will come to Him and seek forgiveness, you can be restored in an instant to walking with Him and new life again. Number two, God overthrows the prideful and the mighty. One of the things I love in the Bible about eschatology, okay, which is kind of a $50 crossword puzzle word for what happens at the end. What happens at the end of all of the story? And Mary is, is giving us eschatological praise. She is talking about what God is going to do in the future through the Messiah. And praising Him for it is that it gives us great hope. I don't watch the news anymore. I don't subscribe to the newspaper. Because I have one of two reactions when I do that. I either get angry or depressed. Right? And, and I, I was going through a lot of my life angry and depressed, and I, I, I didn't want to deal with that. So I don't, want, I don't turn on the TV uh, to watch the news. Okay? I'll turn on the TV. I want to watch something funny, or I want to watch a car explode. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, basically that's it, right? But I don't want to watch the news. And, and here's the deal. You know why I don't? Because there's no hope in that. There's no hope in the next election. There's no hope in the next law that's going to be passed. There's no hope in all of that. There's no hope in revolution. There's none of that. You know where there's hope? For the political ordering of our world and a complete reordering of the whole thing from top to bottom that will be brought about by Jesus the Messiah when all of the powerful, rich, mighty and arrogant are cast down and Jesus reigns as king and these verses are not only hope for us they're also a warning to us not to become one of these people not to become one of the people who remain prideful and forget God and who think that their little fiefdom, their little kingdom of self is going to endure. Because it's not. 
God will cast down all of the mighty, all of the prideful, and God specializes in smashing little kingdoms that compete with His kingdom, whether that's a nation or whether that's just an individual's rebellious heart. Amen? He does. God will not allow Nebuchadnezzar to rule for very long, looking down with arrogance over all that he has made, right? God specializes in stripping the arrogant of their power. And that ought to give us hope and a warning. And then, last thing to remember for today, God faithfully keeps His covenant. God faithfully keeps His covenant from generation to generation long after you are dead. God will be keeping His covenant. We have hope this Christmas because Jesus is not just the God who came to be born as a baby. He is coming back as King. How do we know? Because His first coming revealed that God is the covenant-keeping God. And as the covenant-keeping God we know that He still has promises that are part of that covenant yet to deliver on. And because He has already delivered on the first portion of those, we have great confidence that He will keep His covenant with us also forever. As He kept His covenant with Israel, He is still keeping it with them, and we also can have complete trust in the reality that He will keep His new covenant promises to us. Amen? God is still the covenant-keeping God. Let's pray and let's thank God for these things. Father, we thank You that just as Mary said and praised You for, You are still the God who gives grace to the humble. You are still the God who will cast down the mighty and the arrogant, the rich and the powerful, and replaces them with the rule of the one King who gives grace glory only to Himself and who is only worthy of honor, glory, riches, and praise. And who is not arrogant, who is humble, who came into the world born the, the son of a peasant wrapped in rags, laid in a feed trough in a stable who walked around for 33 years in the only clothes that he owned, who had no place to lay his head, who was unlike the foxes and the birds in that he had no home of his own, and who died on a cross in a humiliating way that those who put him there might be welcomed into the very family of God and enjoy praise, honor, and glory along with Him through faith in His name. Father, we, we're overwhelmed by these realities. We are amazed at a God who loves us like that. God who humbly comes at Christmas to invade the world, to keep His promises, as You always have and always will. Father, we love You, and we 
we thank You for the realities that these, these things reveal to us and remind us of. And we give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing, and then don't go away. Because...